What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm Head of Programming, Connor Boyle. We're exploring the building blocks of how our world works today with writer and broadcaster Ed Conway. Ed's book, Material World, substantial story of our past and future takes him on a global trip tracking down the pathways to channel raw materials such as sand, salt, copper, oil or lithium into everyday essential products such as our computers, our phones, life-saving medicines and the roofs over our heads. Ed is economics and data editor of Sky News and a regular columnist for The Times and Sunday Times, so he knows a thing or two about how economics and commerce work. I spoke to him a little while back during 2023. So with no further ado, let's dive into the material world with Ed Conway. We've got about 60 minutes today for the first about 35, 40 minutes. I'll be having a conversation with Ed and then we'll be coming to you for your questions. So do include them in the Q&A tab. Now onto the event, Ed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, it's fun. Now, in the book, there's six substances you've picked, which are sort of integral parts of the material world. They're sand, iron, salt, oil, copper, and lithium. But the book starts with you holding a detonator in a, in a gold mine in Nevada. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you kind of came to be interested in this topic? Yeah, I, ha- I have one of those moments. Uh, you know, I'm usually kind of quite a phlegmatic person around, you know, I've, I've seen all sorts of things. I'm a reporter. I've been all around the world reporting on many stories. And I was actually in a gold mine in uh, Nevada, just trying to cover a totally separate story. It was about Brexit randomly. It was about flows of trade and how gold was distorting Britain's trade figures. But, you know, in TV, you have to go and film something. And so that thing that we filmed was a gold mine. And so we did the piece and that was all very well. But the thing that I was kind of left, I was struck by at the time, was just the scale of destruction necessary to get even a small amount of gold just took my breath away. That this, this was essentially, it was one of the most advanced and one of the biggest gold mines in the world. And they were doing things in what, at least in the mining world, is a pretty advanced way. Supposedly, they tick most of the boxes environmentally uh, for the most part. And yet, even so, the kind of best form of gold mining we have these days. I thought, it, you know, with gold mining, you could go, go underground with a pickaxe and try and look for the, the shiny seam of, of, of ore. In fact, you're tearing down an entire mountain. There's no two ways around it. You're tearing down a mountain, you're burrowing deep underground and getting enormous amounts of rock. And the scale of that took my breath away. And it kind of just left me thinking, well, that's gold, okay? Gold, we don't, that there are certain important uses for gold, certain medical uses, certain electronic uses, but actually the majority of gold is used for ornamental purposes and for monetary purposes. So it's not 
it's not keeping us alive. So I thought to myself, well, if that's what we're doing to, for something that's ornamental, then what are we doing for the stuff that literally is important to civilization, that without which civilization would basically grind to a halt? And then that obviously sent me down another route, which is to think, well, hang on, what are the things that civilization would grind to a halt without? And I kind of just, I kind of had to guess them. The funny thing was that within economics, you know, you're always looking for a data-based way of trying to, 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 to get the answer to questions like that. But there's not really a very good metric that shows you importance, you know, importance of something. It's just you've got value. And it turns out for a lot of this stuff, actually, the monetary value that, that you pay for a ton of copper or a ton of iron, for instance, um, is relatively low. And so I kind of found myself going down this road that was quite unfamiliar to me about you know, what turned into a kind of philosophical question about what actually mattered in the world and what kinds of things really, you know, should we be valuing that don't necessarily have a monetary value because without them, we would all be kaput. Um, and so that led me down the, the route of these six materials. Now, it's not an exhaustive list. I mean, there are just six of them and you could make a very good case about certain other things. But it just seemed to me that with these six, you could tell a story about the sweep of human progress. And it, it, it is, well, it's been an extraordinary journey, the, the, the kind of an intellectual but also a physical journey that I've been on to try to answer a lot of those, those questions. I don't know if I've answered them uh, completely, but what I think I have done and what I think you get from the book is this sense of looking at the world from a slightly different perspective to the one we're familiar with, from a bottom-up perspective about what really kind of matters and how we turn these quite kind of simple substances, simple materials, whether it's sand or whether it's copper or whether it's lithium, how we turn them through our human magic into something that really is changing the world and continues to change our lives. I, I think you make uh, that point very well. And I will get into some of, you know, uh, the histories of some of these substances in a moment. But before we do that, I just wanted to ask you, you know, obviously since in the last couple of years, we've had sort of tectonic shifts with the war in Ukraine and, and the COVID-19 pandemic. And before that, maybe there was a bit of... Um, I don't know if there was arrogance that we sort of live in this seamless economy where supply chains and things work seamlessly. And there's been a lot of focus on how, how, how that's not true in, in terms of energy. But do you think in terms of uh, the sort of things that you're talking about in terms of the substances, that, that's sort of been lost in this last couple of years? I think it has done. And a couple of things have, have led to that. Um, one of them is that increasingly in Develops, develops societies like ours, so in the UK, the US, part, a lot of Europe as well, increasingly the majority of people do not work in the industries where you are getting stuff out of the ground and turning it into something else. So whether that's manufacturing or mining or to some extent energy, the number of people working in those sectors has diminished as a proportion of the population. And that's partly because we've just got a lot better at getting stuff out with fewer people. Uh, and it's partly just because there are other bits of society which, you know, have grown very quickly. Social networks, you know, that was a whole sector that didn't exist before. And now a large part of, of our society and our value kind of comes from this intangible world. Um, and that has kind of given us the impression, as you're saying, that we do live in an intangible world. Just, I think, because we're personally not kind of in touch with this stuff a lot. And as a result of that, we've, I think, you know, deluded ourselves to some extent about the continued intangible nature of our existence. We think the internet is something that just kind of comes out of the sky and then it arises with us. We think that, you know, maybe something similar with the power. Um, we think that all you need to make a lot of money in this world is an idea for a good app and it just, you know, it happens. 
And to some extent, some of that might be a little bit true, but ultimately we are still grounded in a very material existence. The internet is not an ethereal thing. It is a network of fiber optic cables, a physical network of fiber optic cables and servers around the world that is transmitting data constantly. The only bit that is literally kind of ethereal is usually the final uh, few hundreds of meters potentially to your phone or within your house to your Wi-Fi. The rest of it is for the most part on fiber optics, some of it on copper cables. And it was that physicality that I thought really mattered. So first of all, I think we have kind of lost a bit of our sense of the, the physical roots of our, of our existence. And partly, you know, with things like copper and fiber optics for that matter, it's because they're tucked away. They're sheathed away in wires that you very rarely see. With the steel, the steel in your buildings is mostly encased and you don't tend to see it. Same thing with copper. Um, and with things like salt, we don't think salt matters anymore because we don't kind of, we're not so aware of the chemical processes that we still rely on salt to, to actually get us. You know, you wouldn't have the physical book of material world would not exist without salt because you wouldn't have some of the chemicals we get from salt to break down uh, the wood that turns that then into paper. So paper is something you need salt for, it turns out. The second reason I think that, you know, we have ended up feeling a bit complacent about this stuff is that as while we were deindustrializing, and the, the two things are kind of intertwined, while we were slightly deindustrializing and fewer people were working within the, these, these sectors, we were living in this great era of globalization. And during that period, you know, since the 1990s at least, you just didn't have to worry about where something came from. It just turned up. You kind of ordered it, it came from the other side of the world, and the enormous rise of China has obviously facilitated this. And it's meant that to some extent, you don't have to think about where the steel comes from. You don't have to think about where the copper comes from. It just arrives. And that is true. You know, the, the, as long as you have unfettered kind of globalization, trade all around the world, where something is pulled out of the ground and where, where that is turned, converted from being a piece of stone into a piece of um, fiber optics, for instance, or a piece of stone into a piece of silicon, it didn't really matter all that much. But in a different world, where there are trade barriers, and you know, we've seen it here in the last kind of five, six years with, with Brexit, we've seen the world moving towards a slightly more uh, protectionist environment with Donald Trump, and to some extent, well, actually, even more with, with Joe Biden and some of the policies that he's adopted, with there being bellicose noises between the US and China with concern over what's gonna happen in Taiwan. And of course, as you say, with what happened in Ukraine and what's happening in Ukraine, we are being kind of reminded in a visceral way about what happens when these things, these chains, these interconnections that we all thought we could rely on, when they fracture, then suddenly the stuff that you thought was pretty low value, you know, getting hold of the right carbon, getting hold of relatively small value semiconductors, all of this stuff suddenly matters a lot more. And that potentially is the world that we're living in now, a world where we do need to start thinking a little bit more about where stuff comes from. And that's what's you know, to, to the kind of newsworthiness of, I think, all of this, because it's partly a, a story of history, but it's partly, in, 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 actually in the course of my writing, it became kind of more, more newsworthy. You know, when you look at what's happening with US industrial policy, they are trying to reindustrialize in a massive way right now. And part of that is just so they can have a lot of production on the shore that they previously would have imported from China. And the other reason is because they, like a lot of people, and myself included, think that we are at the outset of what you could classify as a new industrial revolution, this time a green industrial revolution. And if that's happening, industrial revolutions are very big deals. And whoever can have the technology, go through all those learning curves, create the technology that is going to allow you to, you know, 
uh, create energy in a kind of green way or indeed create industrial processes in a green way, those people are going to make a lot of money. And that's that's the other part of this, is that we, we're going through a really pivotal moment right now for the global economy and, of course, the climate. Um, so all of those things intertwine. And to me, just underline why it's helpful to think about the world from this more kind of fundamentalist material perspective. And then aside from all of that, I think it's nice to know how we make stuff, you know? I actually think there's a, there's a wellspring of, of, of curiosity about that, partly because of the fact that so few of us do that stuff anymore. Absolutely. I think that you, you, you strike that balance between this is obviously just giving, helping us understand the world today, but it's also just helping us on a more personal level, just understand the things around us. I'm looking out my window at the glass. I'm looking at cars outside. I'm suddenly starting to think about them in a slightly different way that, you know, all these things have to come from somewhere to create the, you know, the basics of our lives. So let's, let's go to uh, maybe some more specifics uh, and let's start with the substance which, which we all we all know, uh, you, you know, you, the first substance you talk about is sand. Now, I know sand is the thing in between my toes on the beach, but tell me why sand is the great enigma of the material world and how a meteor that struck the Earth 29 million years ago uh, has something to tell us about uh, sand. So, so yeah, sand is, is the first substance I look at. And actually, um, my initial drafts were so big that they would have been almost half a book because there's, there's so much you can say about, about sand. Partly because within it, there are such a range of different things that we make from it. And, and actually, the first material that I look at is, is glass, um, which, again, I thought would be, I thought I'd managed to, to, to deal with glass in a few thousand words and then out it would go. But it is so fascinating, partly because it is really the first technologically advanced manufacture, manufactured product that humankind made. You know, this is kind of, you know, many thousands of years ago, thousands of years BC. Uh, we worked out how to, to melt sand, essentially. And you're melting sand and you're adding a few other things like soda, uh, so kind of lime. Um, and our, our, the glasses that we use today, so, you know, glass in most of our windows, is still what's known as soda lime um, glass. And the, the, the story specifically starts in, in the desert, in, in kind of Egypt, Libya um, area, where a meteor fell kind of, uh, I think it was like 30 million years ago or so, and created, and the force of that explosion, I mean, no one knows for sure, because it's still a kind of archeological question as to how this, or a geological question really, as to how this happened. But the force of that explosion created this sheet of yellow glass across the desert because the heat and pressure, and you need a lot of heat to melt sand. This has been one of the great challenges of uh, humanity was is creating enough heat to melt sand down into glass. And part of the reason you use things like soda ash inside it, so lime, soda lime glasses, soda is the soda ash, is because that lowers the melting point. But in this explosion, all of the desert was, or this large part of the desert was covered in this, in this kind of sheet of yellow, eerie looking canary yellow glass. And they discovered later on that one of the, the jewels that was discovered with Tutankhamen, the, the Egyptian boy king, was actually carved out of some of this, what's been known as Libyan desert glass. Um, and that really is the kind of entry point to kind of explaining just the challenges of what it takes to make glass. But what I love about, you know, so to take glass specifically, is that it not only was it one of the first ever technologically uh, advanced things we manufactured and we learned how to do it many, many uh, thousands of years ago, even today, the world as we know it wouldn't function without glass. So I've mentioned fiber optics. That's basically two sheets of glass within each other. Very, very pure, actually. It's the purest type of glass you can make. It's called fused silica, which incidentally 
is only rivaled for purity by something like Libyan desert glass, because that is incredibly high in its silica content, silica being the main kind of chemical ingredient of sand, silicon uh, oxide. So um, not only is it an ancient technology, even today, you still need glass for your fiber optics. You still need glass to go into those those vials in which vaccines were stored when it came uh, to the pandemic. And one of the things that people were worried about, you, you know, if you remember this during the pandemic, was that uh, were we going to be able to have enough glass, be able to manufacture enough glass to actually distribute all of these vaccines and save people? Because glass is still an unrivaled container uh, for keeping things in. It doesn't leach for the most part, and certainly particular types of glass don't leach, uh, and they're really kind of good at preserving things. Um, but even now, and this is kind of still blows my mind today, even now, if you want to make a silicon chip, so, you know, the most advanced bit of technology we make these days, these incredibly, incredibly small, intricate designs uh, of semiconductors, you still need um, glass lenses to bounce lasers off in order to etch those infinitesimally small transistors onto the silicon chip. The glass is incredibly advanced now. It's not just made of silicon, it's made of molybdenum and a few other things as well. Um, and it's incredibly manufactured. It's um, made by this company Zeiss, which, which you'll all have heard of. Um, but we, there's an interesting kind of side story about them in the book. Um, and it is so flat, these lenses that, that you bounce the lasers off to create the silicon chips. It is so flat that if you were to expand this lens out to the size, they're quite small, they're kind of pretty small lenses. But if you were to expand that out to the size of the continental United States, the biggest deviation would be, I think, about half a millimeter. So if you can get that into your head, wow. it's, it's just yeah. crazy. And that's still glass. And sorry, I've, that's just glass. You can see why I kind of ended up banging on about glass ages. But then, but then you've got silicon, which um, you know goes obviously into silicon chips. So I have a whole there's a whole chapter where I trace that journey from the quarry all the way through to the silicon fabrication plant. Because a lot of the time, when you read about these chips, you know, in the FT or elsewhere. They'll be talking about the last stage where you are doing that etching of the design onto a silicon wafer. But actually, half of the fascinating story is going from the quarry where the silicon is coming out of the ground and then going around the world before it gets to the, to the place where it becomes a silicon chip. Because you do need to kind of go around the world and have all of these different processes and the atoms are smashed up and, you know, precipitated and all of this. So that's then the silicon chips. And then the built world that we're all in right now wouldn't really be here in the way it is without concrete. And I, I think concrete is one of the most underrated substances in the world. It is, an, it's, it, it is like sand, kind of an enigma of its own because we still don't entirely understand what's happening within concrete or indeed cement. So cement is the, the glue within concrete. We still don't understand what's happening in there when it's setting. You know, we, you think you know, about concrete as being this kind of dull, brutal thing that we see around the streets. It's magic. What's going on inside there is absolute magic that we still don't entirely, you know, have our heads around. Um, and yes, it's all, it all kind of begins with stuff that comes out of the ground. And there's a race right now around the world to try and get enough sand to, to make the, the concrete that many countries are trying to urbanize with, which brings us to the, the environmental thing. And the environmental considerations are never far away in all of these materials. You know, with sand, you've got people digging up parts of the Mekong Delta. You've got serious issues with the ecosystems there. You've got problems with sand mafias in India. You've got problems with beaches suddenly being kind of taken away because people need that nice angular sand. It's particular types of sand. And there are a multiplicity of different types of sand. And they, if, they've got, if they can find the right type of sand, then that is quite a prized quantity. And so there is this question about, you know, 
the stuff is pretty valuable. Um, how are you going to actually police um, people getting hold of sand, which everyone else thinks is just valueless? Well, it's not, it turns out. Uh, I, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. And there's so many things I could ask you just on sand. I'll try, I'll try to move on a, a, a little bit. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you slightly back, because it's, it's just quite interesting. We've covered China quite a lot on Intelligence Squared. And I, I, one part of the sand chapter, you talk about land reclamation. I wonder if you could uh, just tell us a little bit about how sand comes into the, you know, in China, they're sort of building these artificial land masses. Yeah, things like the Spratly Islands and a lot of islands in the South China Sea um, are, are being enormously expanded um, by, by sand that's basically dredged out of the water. Sometimes it's dredged from from land nearby, sometimes it's imported from overseas. So you have this enormous trade globally in sand. You know, sand is being used as a, as a kind of, as a weapon. Um, and you have this trade in sand all around the world with, for instance, you've got the military side of it, which is China trying to essentially increase its maritime borders. And when you can increase your maritime borders, then clearly you can, A, you can be using these areas as, as, as air bases, which for a lot of the time they are. But then B, also, by having a bigger land border, a bigger sea border, um, you're increasing the amount of, for instance, um, sea territory that you could go and mine. And another topic that you know, I look at in the book is, is deep sea mining. It may well be no one's particularly uh, enthusiastic about it, apart from the deep sea miners, but that may well be the next frontier of mining if you're looking for particular thing, metals, especially cobalt and nickel to some extent then we may end up having to go under the sea to, to mine them. And the bigger your, your, kind of, um, your coastline is, the more sea you potentially have within your territory to, to, to mine. Um, and then there's just the question of you know, habitation. So a lot of this happens in Asia, but we, we have seen it in, in Europe. You know, the Netherlands was the first country really to do this in, in a kind of, uh, at a grand scale, is using sand to essentially bolster your land mass and to raise your sea level to some extent, or to raise your land level rather again, versus the sea level. The Netherlands has been doing it for ages. Um, we do it less in the UK, um, but over in places like Singapore, for instance, um, and in parts of Japan, there is a massive amount of new land being created. Every year they are creating new land um, out of sand that is dredged out of the, um, uh, out of mostly marine areas, but you kind of run out of enough land to be able to do it in your own, uh, in your own territory. Um, and that is, you know, it's, it's quite significant. As I say, there is this kind of shadow trade of sand that is not very well documented. I, I spent a, quite a long time, and I think that I don't know if it, I think it made it as a footnote in the book, but I spent I spent days digging through the different UN trade archives to try and find out whether the sand that supposedly left one country and got to Indonesia really actually made it, or whether it ended up going somewhere else, at, you know, at the same time. Uh, and you find all sorts of random things like the UK. Surprising as this might sound, the UK exports sand to the UAE, as in to Dubai. We export sand to this desert nation. Um, why is that? I, as far as I can tell, it is partly because we've got some really quite unique sands in this country. And one of the places I, I visited was this sand mine up in Scotland, where we have some of the purest sands in the world, purest in terms of the quantity of, of silica um, versus the amount of iron oxide. So you make incredibly clear glass out of this stuff. But this, you, you don't really think about this world of trading in sand, but it's happening all the time. Um, and it's happening on a grand scale. And some of it, some of it is illegal, you know, some of it is, is, is happening in shady circumstances. And a lot of some of it is being kind of contributing to you know, this military buildup that we're seeing in, in, in China and uh, South China Sea. So, 
yeah, fascinating sound. I want to speak about another substance now, and it's one which, you know, if I can quote your book uh, about salt, you say, while few people comprehend the continued importance of glass to the modern economy, no one questions the importance of silicon chips. Salt, on the other hand, is invariably considered somewhat trivial. Now, is salt trivial or is it an important substance? Well, I mean, of course not. No, it's, salt might be one of my favourite substances because without salt, you don't, you don't really have so, okay, obviously there's the stuff that we kind of know about and we sprinkle it on our, on our chips. Um, and maybe you kind of, you're like aware of the stuff that we grit the roads with. Um, and that's, that's a chunk of, of, of the salt that we produce every, every year. And by the way, the UK produces quite a lot of salt. We are one of the world's biggest producers of salt. Um, again, not, not, that, not that I was aware of this before I started kind of researching the book, but the majority, and again, it kind of comes to why we're, we're a big producer of salt. The majority of the salt that we're producing um, goes directly into the chemicals and pharmaceuticals industry. So there is a reason why when you look at a map of the UK, a lot of our chemicals factories are based where the salt is. They are literally on top of the salt. It's because they are using the salt. They are mining the salt and turning it into chemicals. And sometimes it's things like chlorine. So without chlorine and chlorine-based chemicals, we don't, you know, we wouldn't have purified water. So I went to the, a place where 90 six or so percent of our chlorine comes from it's one it's one room in uh just uh, in, in cheshire if this room goes down it's it's a massive electrolysis plant which by the way is producing is consuming more electricity than the city of liverpool this one room um and if this place goes down then within seven days or so we're we're, we're rationing drinking water in this country that's from salt so that's salt it starts with salt and it ends up in these plants which no one's heard of and no one's very aware of and yet without them we are all in big trouble and that's just one part of it you know things like soda ash i mentioned soda ash a moment ago it's another one of these chemicals which no one thinks about all that much but we make it from salt and we then use it to turn into glass and so there's no glass if you don't have salt as well um caustic soda is another again these also it just sounds like i'm listing boring chemicals here but caustic soda without caustic soda you don't have paper as i say you're not able to turn lithium into lithium hydroxide another substance i look at later in the book which means you can't make batteries. So salt is so fascinating because it has this kind of pivotal process point where it is the thing that enables us to turn one substance into another. And um, again, it's, it's, it, this is a story which I think we need to be screaming about a little bit more. And kind of every time you look at your, your salt cellar, thinking about the fact that even now, you know, salt was this, the, the, they named the, the goddess of, of health after salt, the Romans did. And, you know, lots of famous things about salt, salt in Roman days. I mean, the word salary comes from salt because it used to be paid to soldiers as a form of, of, uh, of recompense. Um, it was the great source of our health and stability back in the Roman era. It is still the great source of our health and stability now because salt 90% of pharmaceuticals, one way or another, rely on the chemicals that come out of salt. And so, yeah, it's massive. It's still incredibly important. And I think the other striking thing is we still make quite a lot of it. We make more. For, there was a period where Britain, and again, the book is this strange, it's a hybrid of a history book, but also a kind of modern kind of bit of journalism. There was, there was a period where the UK dominated the global trade of salt to the extent that it was a, it was a big issue uh, in many parts of the, the colonies at the time. And actually when Gandhi marched 
um, uh, against British rule in, in India, it was salt that he was using as a symbol because he, he went on a, a march towards the sea and, and, and started to, uh, to pick salt out of, the, out of the sea when he got there. Well, that was because the British had banned the Indians from making their own salt so that they could import salt from Cheshire to make, uh, to, you know, to, to, to earn the, India, to the British Empire uh, and British companies money. And so salt is, has this kind of, you know, through the ages quality. Uh, but even now, as I say, we make even more of it now quietly in these places in Cheshire, which no one really thinks much about. Um, and it's still, it is still the core to our existence. Yeah, I love that chapter on salt, because as you say, you're interweaving all these different elements. So you start off with it, it's part of our biology, it's part of our history in the Roman Empire, it's part of our economy now, it's part of geopolitics and history. So you're interweaving all these different aspects of human life to tell the story of this substance, which some people might think only goes on chips, but just has this fascinating, uh, this history. So it, I think, you know, another substance which I thought was potentially... And the most interesting in terms of its repercussions in the next 10, 15 years was was lithium. Uh, and I think it's, it's first of all, it'd be great to hear the story of, you know, the awe and the wonder of the, the Salardi Akatama. Sorry, Akatama, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. But if you could just... If you just tell us about that and the kind of magical metal which lives there. Yeah, so 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 this particular place, the Salar de Atacama, it's this salt lake in, in Chile, and they have within there that they have the biggest reserve of, of, of lithium. There's by the way, there's all these different definitions of of of, of what is available in terms of different metals and resources. You've got reserves, you've got resources, you've got production as well. I mean, I, I kind of explain it all in the book, so I won't go into it in great depth now. But basically, a lot of the world's lithium that is accessible is, is in Chile. And it comes from this place which, which is just extraordinary. I mean, if you've been there, you'll, you'll know. It is a very, very dry region. It's one of the driest regions in the world. In fact, I think it is the driest after there's, there's, there's a part of, of, of I think, the, the Antarctic that's a little bit drier. But in, in terms of inhabitable places, uh, it's, it's barely inhabitable, but it's still, it is, uh, it is just about. But it's very dry there. And partly as a result of that, partly as a result of the, the Andes, this extraordinary mountain range, you just have this strange set of geological circumstances that la that's landed you with this, this, literally this salt lake, okay? And it's quite an eerie place to be. And I went there and I kind of stood on the crust of the salt. And then especially eerie when you know what's underneath, because there's a, there's a slab of, of physical, you know, sodium chloride there that you're standing on. But a few meters, it kind of varies the depth of that slab depending on which bit you're standing in. And you're, by the way, you're not supposed to stand on it. So I got in trouble for standing on it, but uh, you know, it's, uh, I did it. I got there before I got yeah. told off. Um, but, you, but just below that slab is this enormous underground reservoir of salty, so brine, salty water, incredibly high salt content water. And when I say salt, it's lots of different salts. So you've got sodium chloride, you know, salt as we know it. But then you've got magnesium salts, you've got potassium salts, and of course you've got lithium as well. And so this, this is where the lithium comes from. And it's this strange thing where it's been locked up there. It has literally been locked up there for millions of years. And then it gets pumped up um, out, of that, out of that salt lake, this underground reservoir. It gets pumped up and then put into these ponds, these big pools uh, in the middle of the salt flat, where gradually it's basically just evaporated away. So the water evaporates away and the various different other types of salt precipitate away. And at the end of it, and I say at the end of it, it takes about a year for that process to go on. And curiously, by the way, this is where the two, the, all of the different substances start to interweave. The way that you are doing it, 
the way that you're making lithium is quite similar to the way that we used to make salt back in the, the kind of Phoenician era. So you let it just evaporate. And then after about a year, you have this really gloopy kind of lithium heavy concentrate at the end, which is then something that goes off to a refinery and use things like uh, caustic soda or soda ash and then turn it into the lithium chemicals that we that we that then go into batteries. Um, and again, that's the beginning of a journey which go, takes you around the world multiple times because that's just the start. Then it needs to go to a place where it gets turned into the chemicals which go into batteries and then the chemicals get pasted onto particular sheets and then they go to a battery factory. And what you start to realize as you kind of go all the way from the start where stuff comes out of the ground to the products, you know, whether it's your phone or whether it's something else, when you go through that process, you start to realize, hang on, there's this world of complexity. It's not just... Apple and its devices, you know, frankly, Apple doesn't actually make most of the stuff or any of the stuff really that goes in its devices. It's just brilliant at getting other companies to make it. It's not just Tesla. You know, Tesla doesn't actually even make the batteries that go into its cars at the moment, at least. There's this web of other companies, most of which you've never heard of, which are doing the work that then enable these devices that we are using right now to actually work. And um, that's the goes for, for lithium-ion batteries, but it goes also for, for pretty much everything else you can think of, whether it's the display you're, you're watching this uh, on, it's the kind of the battery of the device you're, uh, you're hearing this on. Um, the speakers, they, could, they include kind of rare earth magnets and so on, and headphones uh, do as well, and iron. And when you start to realize the richness of this tapestry of different products that we use on a daily basis without thinking that much about them, because they are so amazing, then you kind of re realize two things. First of all, I think it's quite grounding, you know, excuse the semi-pun there, but you're, you're, you're kind of understanding the relationship between humankind and the kind of mineral substances that we literally pull from the earth to, to, to get there. And I think that's, that's part of what identifies us uh, as humans. But then it also reminds you about how amazing, you know, are the, the achievements that we've managed to do to, to turn this simple stuff into, into kind of amazing products. And, yeah, back to, to lithium. That goes for lithium. But right now, I think the big question is, you know, are we going to be able to get enough of it quickly enough to have all of the batteries in the electric cars that we need, which gets you to that kind of news uh, angle? Because right now, that is a massive story here in the UK, uh, elsewhere as well. There, there, is, there is a big race to try and secure the lithium. The lithium for so electric vehicles seem to have become a massive uh, obviously it, it, it's dependent around batteries and we've seen sort of china massively um you know invest in uh, the ev trade do you see lithium becoming a source of geopolitical tension in the next few years yeah i mean i i yes is the answer i think it's there already i think that's happening already and if you look if you look at things like in the us one of the most consequential pieces of legislation that's happened in in many years is the inflation reduction act i mean ignore the the name, the name is a slightly odd uh, kind of name. It has nothing to do with inflation. It's actually, if anything, it's going to lift inflation rather than uh, cutting it. Uh, but that's by the by. Part of that is about trying to secure enough of these materials, so critical minerals. So lithium is classed as a critical mineral. Um, it's about securing enough of this stuff so that America can rely on its entire supply chain and you don't have a moment where suddenly it turns out that we were massively reliant on other countries around the world. And the reason that matters, in this case particularly for batteries, is when you look at batteries, when you look at who has control of the actual battery manufacturer side, China is utterly dominant, completely dominant. 
It's massively dominant for batteries. It's massively dominant for solar panels. It's massively dominant for polysilicon, which is the, the products, the material, the kind of super refined form of silicon that you then turn into solar panels, but also, by the way, into silicon chips. That's, so that's part of that journey around the world to make a silicon chip. Um, China is so dominant in these things. And I think that part of the reason it's dominant is that for the decades while we were getting quite complacent and thinking, well, if we need to order some steel, we can just order it from, from wherever is cheapest. Um, in the decades that we were taking advantage of globalization, um, China was thinking very differently about this, you know, as, 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 as a kind of governmental strategy. Uh, and they were trying to secure access to minerals, you know, whether it's lithium. Um, and they, by the way, so when you look at all of the big lithium producers, there is always a Chinese company somewhere close at hand. They don't actually have that much lithium within, within China. China is not that mineral rich. It's the interesting thing actually about this. The US is far more mineral rich than, than, than China in terms of just what there is um, on, on the, uh, the continent. Um, but they have been kind of going overseas and you, we will have all read about them going into Africa and trying to do deals with various countries uh, and companies within those countries in exchange for, for, for loans. Uh, some of which are turning bad at the moment, which is another interesting kind of geopolitical economic question right now. You'll have seen what happened with Sri Lanka recently and its debt uh, going bad and all the problems that led to. That's partly a kind of a China story because China had lent a lot of money uh, to Sri Lanka and no one's quite sure how to kind of like write that money off. Um, so in exchange, in return for that, you now see countries like the US, to some extent the UK, although we're quite far behind, definitely Europe as well, coming up with these critical minerals strategies, which basically mean trying to forge alliances with places like Chile um, for, for some of this stuff. But the kind of futurology thing of this, which is interesting, is to think out towards the end of the rest of the 21st century. So think about how much of 20th century, though, so the past century's geopolitical historical story has in one way or another been related to oil. You know, a lot of it, you know, whether it's happened, what's happened in the Middle East, to some extent, you know, what happened in World War II and the way that panned out was partly because of who had control of most of the oil. Hitler didn't have enough oil, uh, essentially. Um, it, in much the same way, this century might well be defined by who has control of some of these minerals. So the minerals you need to go into batteries that go, that go in there and help you kind of create these amazing products. Uh, the minerals you use to make things like kind of hydrogen um, ele electrolysis cells, because again, you need lots of minerals for them. There's this new electrostates. So we're going, we've gone from an era of petrostates to potentially electrostates. And it's a very different cast of characters. To some extent, it's more reassuring because it's places like Chile, which is pretty uh, stable in comparison with many other countries in, you know, in the Middle East, for instance. It's places like Australia. So actually, right now, Australia is producing more of the world's lithium, partly because they don't have to um, drain it from a salt lake and wait a year for it to uh, for it to evaporate. Uh, so you can just do it a lot more quickly. You just dig some rocks out of the ground. But who are you? Who are the Australians? Once they dig those rocks out of the ground, who are they sending them to to get refined? It's China. So it's China. China once again has this, if not stranglehold, then definitely a dominance of so many different parts of these supply chains upon which we are depending if we're going to get to net zero. And let's not forget, if we're going to get to net zero, we need a lot more batteries. We need a lot more kind of infrastructure, whether it's wind turbines, whether it's solar panels, again, China dominant and all of these different things. So you see how things get quite knotty. And that's why the US is quite sensitive about this at the moment. And why, again, thinking in terms of the material world rather than this kind of ethereal world that we thought we inhabited 
suddenly it feels actually quite relevant for the current moment. Absolutely. I think that was, you know, it's just a fascinating uh, thing to think about. Of the, we've, we've seen this dominance of Saudi Arabia in terms of the oil sector and whether, you know, South American countries could have their moment. Uh, you know, Bolivia and Chile, you know, coming to the fore in geopolitics would be really quite something. Now, I'm conscious that we've running out of time. We've got a good few audience questions coming in. Um, so I don't want to dwell too much longer on lithium. I, I, I want to just ask you, you know, one or two big picture questions uh, before we get to the audience. Um, so obviously we've seen in recent years, not limited to the UK, across the world, it's sort of a growing nationalism that, you know, we need to be independent. Uh, we need to be energy independent, uh, have our own minds. Do you, do you think that kind of ideology could cause issues in, in the future? And does this material world kind of tell us about how everything is interconnected? Yeah, I mean, like I, I think it is, if, you, if you've done any study of, of economics, then, then it's, it's quite kind of chastening and quite concerning because the thing you're always taught is that the fewer barriers there are, the better. And you know, if there are fewer barriers, then people will trade more with each other and they'll be more reliant on each other and therefore they'll be less likely get to go to war with each other. And the story, you know, that, that has always been told about the Second World War as part of, the, part of what contributed to it was the breakdown in trade relations in the kind of interwar period. So, so after the First World War, you had this spiraling up of trade barriers and you had diff the world kind of breaking into different blocks, which gradually precipitated the Second World War. Whether we're living through something similar, I, I, you know, I just don't know. But I do, you can see that a lot of the, the noises about energy independence, like you say, about material independence, they are, they are not uh, unfamiliar if you look back through history and look at that period. I think the only thing that's, that's worth pondering, and whether this is, you know, whether it makes one more reassured or the other way around, I don't know. But when, when Russia went to war in Ukraine, I mean, the, the impact that it had on the global economy was pretty serious. Energy prices went really high. Russia, obviously, less, less the UK directly, but obviously we're part of a kind of international uh, market, energy market. But Europe was, was very severely hit and, and actually, Although the recessions have been relatively shallow, so Germany and the Eurozone is in recession at the moment, the UK not, not although there's, there's all sorts of kind of reasons why it might well face something. Although it's been kind of relatively shallow, when you look at the makeup of, of what we're actually doing in our economies, it's kind of shifted quite a lot. So, you know, in Germany, they invented the manufacture of artificial fertilizers. They've actually stopped making them in Ludwigshafen, which is the main BASF place where this is where it all began. And without those fertilizers, we're all, you know, well, 50% of the global population wouldn't be able to survive. So it's one of the most magical, marvelous things that we've ever been able to do in our, our lives, made, by the way, from natural gas. But they're not making it in the, U in, in the EU anymore. They're, they're shipping that off and making it in the US. And so there are certain ways in which some of the material things that we make in these countries is just suddenly they, they've stopped and no one's quite noticed. Same in the UK, we're not actually making our fertilizer anymore, we're importing it from overseas. But again, no one's really noticed about this. Um, the worry is that when you continue to kind of, to, to break down, uh, then you, you potentially kind of, you potentially have these big economic consequences. But if you look at China, so as opposed to Russia and Europe, you look at China and our relationship with China economically, we are much more reliant on China for our imports, much more. You know, there are very few things that we you can buy in this country without it having come from China, either directly 
or indeed indirectly in terms of the feedstock, so like a plastic that then goes into a plastic toy, even if the plastic toy is made somewhere else, sometimes the actual plastic feedstock will have been made uh, in China. And that kind of leaves you thinking, if there were to be a war, if things were to get worse, if there were to be trade barriers, it would be really, really tough, really tough for us, but also significantly really tough for China because China's reliant on us buying their things. And I think the extent to which we are interwoven, and this is another thing you see, if you, when you're looking at the materials that we're using and the, the way that we're interlinked, you see just how linked we are, you know, incredibly umbilically linked with, with, with China. And that's not stuff you can kind of un- disentangle in the space of a year or two. You know, this is stuff that takes decades to disentangle. Uh, and therefore, one hopes that that's something that policymakers in the US and in China are very conscious of because we, we, we'd all be in big trouble if, if that stuff were to be, you know, if those cords were to be broken. So hopefully, hopefully there's a bit of hope there. But also, yes, yeah, it's, it's like it's kind of a nuclear thing, isn't it? You know, the, the, the consequences would be so severe that one hopes no one goes there, but you just never know with the, the state of the world as it is. Mm. Well, Ed, I'm going to turn over to some audience questions now. Uh, a quick reminder, if you haven't already submitted one, just go to the Q&A tab, type in what you want to say and hit send. And do remember, if you want your name to be read out uh, or here and also on the podcast, you just put it in with the question. So the first question is from Jonathan. I don't know how much you'll know about this, but how long is it before we want to or are forced to mine for extraterrestrial substances? I, I don't know if that means on the moon or, or look for new substances beyond the world. It's a really good question. I mean, uh, I think, so, so there's, there's, two, there's two things. I, I don't look at extraterrestrial mining, but I do look at deep sea mining, okay? And in some ways they're quite similar. You're going into, into territory that, that, you know, humankind isn't supposed to survive in, uh, and you're trying to get min- minerals out. It is incredibly expensive to do so. So both of these models, and I think Japan is that is is as far as we know, Japan is kind of they, they've already took a bit out of an asteroid. So as as a kind of demonstration for what might be possible, and Japan actually is quite quite advanced. Essentially, there's a bit of the Japanese government uh, government or quasi government called Jogmeg who look look at this stuff, who are much more advanced than anyone else. They're also they've also done a bit of deep sea mining. The question mark here that I have, and I've thought about this really. The question mark here is, given how expensive that stuff is, I think, you know, deep sea mining is now doable. It's plausible in a way that it wasn't before, but it's not commercially plausible. And I think the case with, with deep space mining, it's even more so. You know, it's, it's just about, we know it's, it's possible now. We've seen Japan kind of doing that. I'm sure that Chinese are doing something similar as well. But you've got to be able to do this at a, at a rate that's, that's affordable. Otherwise, everything that we buy is just going to be crazily expensive. And we haven't yet depleted this planet's resources, nothing like it. And why I hope one of the messages that you'll take from the book is while there are certain things which are becoming, you know, harder and more expensive to get, copper's the really good example here, actually. The whole cop- a lot of the copper chapter is devoted to this, precisely this point. We have just got better and better over the years at getting hold of even when there are tiny small bits, we're really good at getting it out of the ground and turning it into a metal. And so my expectation is long before anyone's even talking very seriously about deep sea uh, or deep space mining, we're going to be, you know, finding new clever ways of getting copper out of what previously looked like a waste product uh, or indeed the same thing with cobalt. And then the other thing that's worth mentioning is that we are getting better at recycling. And I think that's something, again, that I mentioned a fair few times in the book and there's a whole chapter on it. We, we are getting much better at recycling. And so as time goes on, hopefully 
the resource um, dependence that we have on the world and our need to kind of dig stuff up and blast stuff up might diminish. But here's the thing, in order to get to that point, we have to go through this enormous hump where we're making more stuff than we ever have done before in order to get to, to net zero. So you've got a massive amount coming up in the next kind of 30, 40 years. And then hopefully we kind of, it kind of peaks and goes down and we become a bit more sustainable in the future. I, I seriously doubt we'll be doing deep space mining in that period, not because I don't think it's cool, because it, it does look really cool, uh, albeit a, bit, a little bit kind of terrifying, um, but just because we'll have found cheaper ways of get, getting stuff out of the ground, you know, here in the terrestrial Earth. Uh, the next question, uh, there's no name attached to it, but it just says, which material in terms of mining and use does the most harm to the environment? And I think he touched a bit about this in the first chapter on gold, where he said cyanide and mercury is released or used just to get gold. So which substance, you know, is has the biggest impact on the environment? It's a really good question. I mean, gold gold mining is pretty, is pretty awful. Um, and as I say, even in a mine that is supposed to be one of the most advanced, you know, socially responsible mining, environmentally socially responsible mines in the world, it's still... It's still pretty, um, you're using cyanide, you're using a lot of nasty chemicals uh, to do it. It's a good question. I like. It's hard to think of many of these things that don't leave a significant footprint. I mean, the, the footprint on copper mining is just, is just extraordinary and you've got large parts of Chile. So it used to be the case that before people kind of stored the, the waste products, they put them into what are called tailings dams because they call them tailings. That's the euphemism for, for a lot of the waste product. But it's, this is pretty toxic stuff. Before they put it into dams, um, and the dam at this particular mine, by the way, that I visited in, in South, in, in, again in Chile, it's called Chukicamata, the mine, the, simply the, the area where they store the waste product, the tailings dam, is bigger than the island of Manhattan now, if, just to put that into context. But before that, they used to put it into the mines, because that, that, into the dams, because that dam's only been there for a few years. Um, they just used to let it kind of run down to the sea. And you've got large parts of the sea that are still kind of incredibly um, toxic, and you see it coming up in the urine of, of, of local residents. Um, the, other, the other material that's, like, nickel mining is not, is not potentially, not particularly environmentally uh, friendly. So, Within somewhere like Indonesia, you have the world, some of the world's biggest reserves of nickel. You need a lot of nickel to make a, um, a rechargeable car battery, for instance. Actually, just as much, if not more, than you need lithium, because the nickel makes it really go. It gives it, it, gives it power. Um, in order to mine that nickel, um, they, they mostly just chuck the waste product into the sea there. And they do it for reasons, again, that, that you know, they seem kind of plausible. It, it's, it's a tectonically... Um, volatile area, so the risk is if you have a tailings dam, then it could just, you know, kind of go uh, and then you have a terrible disaster. But by the same token, you are pumping this stuff, this toxic waste substance into the sea. That happens for, for, for all of these car batteries. If your nickel is coming from Indonesia, then there's a good chance that it has come from a mine where it is basically the waste product goes off into the sea, which is pretty awful. And then you've got things like cobalt. I mean, and, and the other issue here is it's not just the environmental thing. Um, and by the way, sorry, um, worth saying that, that mining and refining are also massively carbon intensive. And so, you know, the amount of carbon, again, this invisible pollution that's going into the sky, just because you're burning so much energy, sometimes you use coal as part of the refining process as well. So it's chemically created carbon as well as just burnt carbon. Um, a lot of carbon emissions come from mining. Um, 
And it's and yeah, so the, fi- the final point really, things like cobalt, you know, it's not just the environment, it's also the kind of social consequences. And you've got a country, the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, the majority of the world's cobalt reserves are there. Cobalt, not not one of the six materials I look at, nor is nickel, but I do touch on, on both of them. And um, the, the conditions in many of those mines, particularly the artisan mines, so the, there are big official mines where conditions are kind of okay, although some of them, particularly the Chinese run ones, there, there are stories. Um, but in, in other places, in artisan mines, you know, you have ch- young children working there, very young children. You've got potentially, you know, question marks about slave labor. Uh, you've got terrible conditions, medieval conditions. This is still happening today in order for people's batteries, particularly in your phone and your laptop, um, to be made. And again, more consciousness about that would be helpful. Um, it's a good question, though. I don't know if there is like a, the, you know, in the World Cup of, of, of terrible pollution coming from, from uh, particular metals. I don't know which one would win. It's all pretty, pretty grimy. But unfortunately, that's the, that's the compromise of the world we're living in now. We are having to do grimy things in order to satisfy a lot of non-grimy objectives that we have, like net zero. Uh, and even if we all try and, you know, pare back our consumption as much as possible, which would be no bad thing uh, in this country, I don't know if it's realistic, but if we, even if we did it here, there is still this massive demographic bulge of people who are kind of industrialising and wanting to get the stuff that we have right now, which means we are, we are living in this increasingly material world rather than a decreasing uh, appetite for material stuff. Another question here, uh, we might have time for one or two more, is do you think net zero is possible with our reliance on these substances? You kind of touched on this, but, you know, is it the case, you know, you, you showed this sort of awe and wonder with these substances. Is there some of these substances we have to just reduce our reliance on? Um, and, you know, lithium, obviously, there's this battle between it being both a potential uh, a solution to carbon emissions, but also it has all these secondary effects. So do you have any thoughts on net zero, which you've mentioned? I think, I think, I think thinking of it in this prism underlines just how hard it's going to be. Um, it doesn't mean it's impossible. It's not by any means impossible. It's just that it's harder than anything we've ever done before. And I'm not just saying that for the purposes of you know, hyperbole. It's, it's harder than anything that humankind has done before because we have to effect an industrial revolution. You know, this is what's rarely discussed. We have to reimagine the very bones of how we make stuff all over again. And what you'll see when, you kind of go, when we go through all of these substances is that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of years worth of experience in turning certain products into, turning certain materials into products that we have done in order to get the world that we that we have today. And to get to net zero, we have to learn how to do it all over again without emitting carbon again. It, while also at the same time, going from quite energy dense uh, sources of energy, like oil, like gas, to going to less energy dense sources uh, of energy, um, like storing energy in a, in a battery. Uh, that's, not, that's not a source of energy, but you're having to store it in a battery. It's not as, it's not as energy dense as it, as it was before, making all of that much more of a challenge. It's not impossible. And, and the challenge, you know, doing an industrial revolution all over again is also one of the most exciting things we could possibly do. You know, we, we, we are setting ourselves a massive challenge. And when has humankind set itself a challenge as great as this? We haven't really, all, and to try and do it in such a short space of time. All of that is amazing from a, an engineering standpoint, but it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult. And the difficulty, I don't think many politicians have quite appreciated how difficult it is when they signed up to it. Uh, and now only when you kind of look at the different um, materials that we're reliant on and look at the world from the bottom up rather than the top down, do you see 
gosh, it's going to be hard. But like I say, that's it's it's a massive opportunity, and it probably means it's quite an exciting time to be living in, if scary as well. Mm. Well, just a quick newsy one as well, which has come in. Um, I don't know how much you've seen of this, but what do you think of Keir Starmer's GB Energy? I'm not sure if that's GB Energy announcement this morning. Is that moving the dial in the right direction? Yeah, well, so, so I mean, I think it's really interesting. Um, I think there's an active discussion at the moment about, so the, the, the most newsworthy bit of it is, is not, no new licenses for North Sea kind of oil exploration. And... You can, I, I, could, I could see, I can make two kind of very, you know, plausible arguments about this. On the one hand, it's it's like we need we need actually quite a lot of oil in order to get to net zero. So leaving aside the burning of it for, you know, in, in planes and in cars, which certainly we should do less of, um, we still need a lot of oil to make the materials. Whether it's like you need carbon fiber, for instance, to make a wind turbine, um, and you need to burn gas in. Um, a glass furnace to make fiberglass and you can't have a wind turbine without fiberglass and carbon fiber in the sails. So it's just like, and, you, and in order to make a, you know, the battery in a mobile phone, you need lots of graphite. And where do you get the graphite from? Well, some of it gets mined out of the ground, but some of it comes from crude oil. So, you know, and actually, by the way, some of the graphite in your iPhone might well come from the North Sea because we, we actually make a lot of the, um, the, um, that graphite in this country. Well, not the graphite, we make the, the coke that then becomes the graphite. So you can make an argument that says, why would you add an extra barrier to, you know, our ability to do net zero and to, to engineer net zero? But by the same token, you know, the North Sea is relatively, it's relatively mature. There are definitely kind of some new fields that, that you could go to at the moment, but the oil that you're getting out of them isn't quite as good as the old stuff. So I've got, I, I don't have it here, but I've got like a kind of um, uh, a little jar of North Sea crude and you kind of, you can tip it about. It's called light sweet crude and you can tip it about and it's, it's, it, it flows. But actually a lot of the oil that we have in some of these sea, these fields like Cambo in the west of Shetlands, it's not particularly, it's quite heavy. So it's not really very good for our refineries. And there's lots of kind of engineering reasons why, you know, you, the North Sea is not where you'd be looking anyway. But that bigger point that we shouldn't really be demonizing these things. Yes, we should be burning less oil. Definitely, we should be burning less oil. Yes, we should be looking for ways we can do sustainable aviation fuel. Yes, we should be using less gas. And part of the issue in this country is they have, you know, we need to try and work out what we're going to do with domestic heating, which we haven't at the moment, you know? We need to work out whether we're all going to have um, heat pumps or whether we're going to have hydrogen. Probably looks like heat pumps for most of us, but even so, there is no kind of consistent government policy on this. And I, I, I'll kind of start ranting in a second so you can kind of cut me off. But it is worth, you know, not demonizing oil just for the sake of it, because we do still need some of this stuff to get us to where we want to be. We genuinely need it. You know, there isn't really a clever way. There isn't really a plausible way of getting to net zero without some fossil fuels on the way. And then we can, and then we're kind of coming off it. And so that's the risk that I would see is just by by cutting off our nose to spite our face, then we can kind of, we'll make things a little bit more difficult for us. And, and this is the difficulty is that I think until you look at the world through this prism, either it looks like it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward and we can just stop kind of getting stuff out of the North Sea, or you think it's disaster. No, it's somewhere in the middle. The, the world is, is full of gray areas. And I'm afraid if you're after straightforward answers, you know, simple answers, you're not gonna find them in this book because it is all about that in-between zone where, for me, 
it's most fascinating because net zero is, is a wonderful, uh, noble goal for us to be pursuing. But by the same token, it's incredibly difficult, um, and there are you know there are question marks about how easy it's going to be to get there. That's the interesting stuff, and I don't know that politicians from either side of the house have fully appreciated that uh, at the moment. So, but I'll after uh, you know I'm yet to read the full thing, so you know I'll come back to you. We'll, we'll we'll see in the next few years anyway if that materializes. But I'd just like to say a huge thank you to Ed for a fascinating conversation. Uh, the book again is Material World: A Substantial Story of Our Past and Future, and it's available now from your local bookshop. Highly recommend it. It will really inform you about all these things that are hiding in plain sight. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by myself, Connor Boyle, and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.